Hezekiah had emerged as one of the greatest of kings, one who restored monotheism to Jerusalem and the centrality of the temple service. And yet what the rabbis are noting is that throughout much of Hezekiah's reign, as he attained these glorious achievements, he seems to have done little to pave the way for a future when he would no longer be alive. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 134, Hezekiah and the Painting of Churchill. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In honor of Winston Churchill's 80th birthday, the British Parliament commissioned a portrait of the great man from the artist Graham Sutherland. And in creating the portrait, Sutherland made a decision that in the end did not sit well with others. He wielded his art honestly and told the truth. The problem, as Simon Schama writes, was that, quote, all of Britain was wanting an image that would embody everything that Churchill had meant during the war, the national savior without whose resolve they would have ended up like France, crushed by shame and occupation. The portrait Parliament and the people wanted was not just a likeness of a man. It was supposed to be an apotheosis of Britain itself, the finest hour in the form of the finest man. When this sank in, Sutherland knew he could not live up to this cult of national salvation. All he could do, he kept on telling himself, was paint what he saw, end quote. In the end, as Shama further informs us, Sutherland created one of the great portraits in the history of British art. But the painting he created portrayed a mortal man overcome with age. It was raw and uncompromising in its honesty, and Churchill hated it. He made it clear that he hated it. Today, this painting does not hang in Parliament or in the National Portrait Gallery. We do not have it, only preparations for it because Clementine Churchill ordered it burned. Churchill, the greatest statesman of the 20th century, did not want to confront his mortality. Herein lies a lesson, one which can also help us interpret the legacy of one of the greatest kings in the Bible. The 38th chapter of Isaiah begins by describing King Hezekiah being struck with an illness. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amotz, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sorely. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. From the fact that this righteous king is suddenly struck by illness, with the prophet telling him in the name of God, that he, Hezekiah, will die, only to have it divinely declared following Hezekiah's prayer, that Hezekiah has received a reprieve, we are apparently intended to deduce that there was a spiritual sin committed by Hezekiah that brought about his original sickness at the hands of Providence. But what did Hezekiah do wrong? As Eagle Ariel points out, one possibility is Hezekiah's failure, despite his greatness, to highlight his gratitude to and reliance on the Almighty after the miraculous salvation from Assyria. Thus, the next chapter of Isaiah, like its parallel in the book of Kings, describes Hezekiah showing off the temple in Jerusalem to visiting Babylonians, seemingly exuding confidence. Isaiah arrives to remind the king that Jerusalem and the temple are not invincible. Chapter 38, verse 3. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto king Hezekiah and said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Then said he, What have they seen in thine house? And Hezekiah answered, 
All that is in mine house have they seen. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. So according to this interpretation, confidence and lack of a full feeling of gratitude and reliance is the source of Hezekiah's sin. The problem with this explanation, as Rabbi Ariel himself points out, is that the story of the sickness of Isaiah implies that his illness occurred before the full salvation from Assyria. Here again is Isaiah's message to Hezekiah when he was ill, with a few words that follow in the next verse. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. If then we assume that Hezekiah fell ill before Assyria's total defeat, then what failure of leadership brought Hezekiah's sickness about? In the Talmud, a different explanation is offered, which is, at first, a surprising one. The rabbis assert that Hezekiah refused to perpetuate his family, his dynasty, that he refrained from having children, from producing an heir. The Talmud further states that Hezekiah's hesitancy in this regard stemmed from his spiritually sensing that his successor would be sinful, a reference to his son Menashe, who would embrace paganism. Isaiah, therefore, according to the Talmud, informs Hezekiah that he will be punished because of this refusal to have children. And the Talmud adds, Hezekiah's reprieve is granted by God only when the king commits himself to marrying and allowing an heir to come into the world. Now, ladies and gentlemen, at first there seems to be no hint in the biblical text to this Talmudic interpretation. But, as Rabbi Ariel and others point out, if you look carefully, you will notice something striking. Here is the book of Kings, chapter 21, describing Hezekiah's successor. Menashe was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars for Baal, and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. Menashe then, son of Hezekiah, does indeed undo his father's accomplishments, but, ladies and gentlemen, note his age when he takes the throne. He was 12 years old. And because we know that Hezekiah was granted 15 extra years after his illness, this means that Hezekiah, amazingly, did not seem to have had children before his illness and only produced an heir after this new lease on life was granted by God. And I would add that we cannot help but wonder, had Hezekiah been able to instruct his son all the way into adulthood, had he had an heir earlier? Had he devoted the golden years of his reign to preparing an heir beforehand, might matters have gone differently after Hezekiah was gone. We might further suggest that in the Talmudic Midrash about Hezekiah, there lies perhaps a deep lesson. Hezekiah had emerged as one of the greatest of kings, one who restored monotheism to Jerusalem and the centrality of the temple service. And yet what the rabbis are noting is that throughout much of Hezekiah's reign, as he attained these glorious achievements, he seems to have done little to pave the way for a future when he would no longer be alive. As Rabbi Yigal Ariel puts it, the meaning of the Talmudic teaching is that in overseeing the course of history, Ulam Chizkiyahu Ta'a, Hezekiah, however, made a mistake. La Adam yesh tafkid chashuv b'mahalach hadvarim. 
to a human being can be granted an important role in overseeing matters. But existence is also possible without him. That is my translation of Rabbi Ariel's Hebrew. Or, as I would attempt to put it, a striking fact is that great leaders don't always want to imagine the world without their leadership. It is true, of course, that this is true beyond leaders themselves. Many people do not wish to dwell on mortality. Thus, the English poet Edward Young once reflected, All men think all men mortal but themselves. Themselves when some alarming shock of fate strikes through their wounded hearts the sudden dread. But their hearts wounded like the wounded air soon close, where past the shaft no trace is found. As from the wing no scar the sky retains, the parted wave no furrow from the keel. So dies in human hearts the thought of death, even with the tender tears which nature sheds. Over those we love, we drop it in their grave. But if this is true about human beings in general, that they do not wish to confront mortality, it is doubly true often about powerful leaders who change the world they lead. To read about Roosevelt, FDR, is to be struck by the fact that this frail but enormously powerful man gives every thought to winning the war and redefining the world order, but seemingly very little thought to the possibility that he might die and that his vice president will define not only the nature of his own legacy, but the future of the world. When one reads, say, David McCullough's magisterial biography of Truman, one is struck by the fact that Roosevelt does not seem to care all that much whether his vice president is Jimmy Byrne or Harry Truman or William Douglas, and only a man who does not conceive of the very real possibility that he might die four months into his fourth term does not give the choice of his successor any real thought. Meanwhile, Churchill found himself at the age of 80 refusing to retire, refusing to make way for the next generation. The savior of England could not imagine that the country did not still need a savior. As Simon Schama writes, quote, Churchill's famous quip that he knew history would be kind to him because he would write it himself came home to him when he contemplated what the story of his last years would look like to those who would chronicle it after he was gone. He himself was at work writing the later volumes of his history of the English-speaking peoples. After the brutal shock of rejection by the electorate in 1945, his second prime ministership, beginning in 1951, came as vindication. It also had come at a time when the terrors of the Cold War and Britain's uneasy position between the United States and the Soviet Union had become unsettling. So Churchill had resigned himself to the hard fact that henceforth America would be very much the senior partner in the alliance. He fervently believed that there was no one in British political life, certainly not his likely successor, Anthony Eden, who could navigate a course between the superpowers with as much authority and experienced wisdom as himself. So when a new and even more apocalyptic weapon, the hydrogen bomb, was tested, Churchill saw himself as indispensable to the fate of his country and indeed the peace of the world, end quote. And this, as Shama further notes, is why an honest portrait of Churchillian mortality could never be embraced by the prime minister, quote, for all these reasons, the face that would appear in the portrait assumed a significance well beyond that of a birthday present. It had to be an image of his body politic, the rock, as he told the painter when he started to sketch. Sutherland later remembered that Churchill repeatedly and indiscreetly told him about the maneuvers against him in the cabinet and his party and the ill-advised efforts to get him out of the way, affronts he took personally as well as politically. In fact, Churchill grumbled constantly to Sutherland during their sittings about the attempts to push him out of number 10. Churchill, Shama continues, may well have thought to himself, he's a clever man, he will understand what is needed here, but the painter had a political tin ear. He just carried on sketching that the portrait had now become a crucial weapon in Churchill's resistance to his own demise didn't occur to him, end quote. In the end, the painting told the true story, and if Churchill hated it, it was because 
he was looking his own mortality in the face. Here then, ladies and gentlemen, is what is interesting. As I've noted in my Tikva series on Pirkei Avot, the one striking contrast to the story of Churchill and his portrait is that of a descendant of Hezekiah, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, one of the seminal Jewish legal figures in history. It was due to Rabbi Judah's combination of scholarship and authority that the Mishnah came into being. The Talmud describes how when Rabbi Judah was dying, the rabbis devoted themselves to pleading from heaven to keep Rabbi Judah alive, though he was suffering and in terrible pain. And then the Talmud further tells us that when Rabbi Judah died, there were those who could not even acknowledge the fact that Rabbi Judah had passed away. But, the Talmud tells us, Rabbi Judah himself, in his final days, did acknowledge his mortality and set the stage for his family's future and for the future of his faith, instructing his children and his students about how the next generation should be led and how his legacy should be perpetuated. Those that followed would not be as great as he, but a leader preparing the world for a world without that leader is itself one of the greatest acts of leadership. Hezekiah, yes, was followed by the sinful Menashe, but we also know that his later descendants are some of the most extraordinary men in Jewish history, King Josiah, Hillel, and Rabbi Judah. And it is the courage of a leader like that latter rabbi that set the stage for the future of Judaism itself. And it is words that Rabbi Judah, knowing his own ancestry, once coined that are still said today. David Melech Yisrael Chai V'Kayam. King David still lives. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.